Amen. All right, check it out. Hey, it started out just like any other sunny day in this tropical island paradise. I mean, the birds were singing, the trees were swaying, the soothing sound of the ocean waves blanketed the whole area. I mean, John, what could go wrong in this beautiful location, right? Well, it happened in a twink of an eye. Precisely 12.53 p.m. on a Sunday, the mountain on this island erupted, sending a cloud of gas and debris ultimately 50 miles into the air. And then soon after, four more tremendous explosions were heard as far away as 3,000 miles. That was just the beginning. The explosions not only plunged the nearby mountains straight into the sea, but it's estimated that this eruption was 10 times more powerful than Mount St. Helens and 13 times more explosive than the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. In fact, the sound from this eruption was so loud, it was reported that if anybody was within even 10 miles, they would have gone deaf. And as you might expect, the damage was unbelievable. Thousands were killed by hot volcanic gases. The wave it created circled the whole globe three and a half times. Thousands were killed by a devastating tsunami with a wall of water nearly 120 feet tall. Nearby islands were completely overwhelmed. Ships were destroyed. 165 coastal villages and towns were absolutely decimated. And listen, the people fought their neighbors just for a toehold on the cliffs. And when all was said and done, the immediate area didn't see dawn for three days. Ash fell for as far as 4,000 miles. Shockwaves circled the planet seven times. 120,000 people died. Listen, with reports of groups of human skeletons still found floating in the ocean, washing up on other continents even a year after this eruption. In fact, the eruption was so big that it caused temperatures to drop all over the world for the next five years. The year was 1883, and the disaster, of course, was... You guys actually got that. Give yourself a golf clap. That's exciting. I can't believe it. Crack a toe right on. That's right. Now, that's not talking about when you stun, you hit it on the concrete block, your toe, and you crack. No, it's a whole different one, Mark, in case you're wondering, because you didn't get the right answer, but we'll talk about that later. But we've all heard of Hello Crack and Toe, right? Most of us. A lot of us. All right? You guys got the right answer, okay? And we can agree that was one of the worst disasters of all time, right? The statistics don't lie, okay? But again, with all due respect for those who lost their lives in the eruption of Krakatoa, what if I were to tell you I know a disaster that makes Krakatoa look like a child's cough? Okay, something minor to that degree. In fact, what if I were to tell you that this disaster didn't occur in just one place at one country at one time? It's going on right now, today, all over the world, and it's been leaving a trail of death and destruction for centuries. It just doesn't seem to stop. And once again, folks, we are talking about the satanic war on the Christian. And again, the facts are this. We Christians need to wake up. Why? Because we go to war every single day. It's not here and there once in a while. You don't reach some plateau point in your walk with Jesus Christ. It never stops. Okay, the moment we got saved, whether we see it, feel it, believe it or not, we just entered into a spiritual war against a real life demonic host whose sole purpose is to destroy you and to extinguish your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And so in order for you and I to stop getting duped and unnecessarily so beat up spiritually all over the place, we're going to continue our study, the satanic war on the Christian. We've already seen if you're going to win this war, what do you got to do? The first thing, you need to know who your enemy is, right? The second thing, what your enemy is like. The third thing, the tactic of your enemy. The fourth thing, the destruction from your enemy. The fifth thing, the temptation from your enemy. And the last five times, the sixth thing, praise God, the what? The protection from the enemy. And this is the good news. We finally made it through all that section to find the good news. God basically has not left us hanging high and dry when it comes to dealing with real live spiritual warfare. With real live Satan and demons, okay? He hasn't left us hanging high and dry. He's given us, Christian, his full-blown protection, his amazing weaponry to stand our ground. Listen, not just stand and just sweat bullets, but to be victorious in every single situation. If you just do what he says to do, stand in his strength and his mighty power and put on what? 
the armor of God, every last piece of it. Now, when it comes to the armor of God, this section we've seen, it's designed for war. The second thing was designed for victory. The last two times, it's designed to what? It's designed to stick on the wall and look at so that when your friends and family come over, you go, wow, look at that spiritual belt hanging there. That goes really nifty with that breastplate of righteousness. Looks like it's made of plastic, but I'll give you that. It, no, right? It's designed to wear. It's designed to put on. Now, it's not a literal belt. It's not a literal breastplate, but it's a literal belt and breastplate that the Roman soldiers wore to teach us a literal spiritual truth, okay? And that's what we saw. The first thing, of course, was that belt Okay, that we are to put on. You guys remember what the belt stood for? Contextually, biblically, let's break it down, get rid of the Christianese. What's he talking about when he says put the belt on? Every single day you put on the Bible. You strap the Bible on. Why? Because the Bible keeps all things together. And as we're going to see as we continue to journey in the armor of God, it's the word of God that hinges every other piece of the equipment. You've got to get in the word of God every single day. That was the first piece. The second one we saw last time was what? The breastplate of righteousness. And again, what we saw there was basically Paul's way of saying, we need to choose ourselves. Nobody can do it for us. We have to say, before we get out of the bed, we are going to put on practical righteousness. Practical righteousness, right? Okay, not positional. That's something given to us by Jesus Christ. Praise God. We're going to see that again, Lord willing, today. Okay, but we saw there with the breastplate of righteousness, it protects us from all angles. Why? Because the enemy is evil. He's the evil one. He is the unrighteous one. Remember that? And so every day when they come at us, what are they trying to get us to do? They're tempting us to do unrighteous things. So God gives us this piece of equipment called the breastplate of righteousness to counteract that. And it's basically us of our own initiative every day saying, no, I refuse to be an instrument of wickedness. Remember? And by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, I want to be an instrument of God, an instrument of righteousness. I refuse to be Satan's weapon this day. That's a choice you have to make. Just like I can't make you get into the Word of God, put your belt on. I can't make you get up every day and say, my focus is to be an instrument of righteousness. Why? Because purity matters. How many of you guys went home and squirted mustard in your uh, water the rest of the day and mayonnaise and relish? Remember that? Remember that? And then that's the whole point. Why would you do that on purpose? Why would you squeeze all this? On, why would you do And you wonder why your walk with Jesus makes you want to puke. Or you feel sick. Stop squirting unrighteousness. Choose today who you will serve. Be that instrument of righteousness. Okay, that was the second piece. Now, the third piece armor, he says, we better hurry up and get this on. Remember, it's not you just put on some of these pieces. Oh, well, maybe I'll do this one this week. I'll try that one later next week. If it works with my calendar. No, no, no. Every piece you need on. Put on the... Full armor of God. So we got the belt on, hopefully, before you even came today, Christian. Did you get into the Word? Right? Did you make a choice before you left the house today? I'm going to be an instrument of righteousness. Then guess what? You ain't got the armor on. Right? Now, the third one he says you need to also make a decision is this. You need to put on these things called the shoes of peace. Of the gospel of peace. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, let's go back and let's find out. Let's do our detective work. Ephesians chapter 6, once again is our text. Let's take a look. What is this next piece, the third piece of armor that God gives us for victory that we have to make the cognizant choice ourselves to put on? What is these shoes of peace, right? Ephesians chapter 6. And I say that because how many guys this week, you were shopping out there, you went to Walmart, you went to Kohl's, you went to wherever you went to, and you went up to the lady up there at the counter and said, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am. Could you show me the aisle where the shoes of peace are? I'd like to buy a pair. Yeah, we know it do that because obviously you're dealing with something symbolic. So let's find out what in the world is these shoes of peace are all about. Let's take a look. Verse 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because here's your struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, guess what? What do you do? You put on the full armor of God, so that when, not if, the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to what? To stand. Notice the, the phrase there again, to stand. Okay, well, how do you do that? Well, he starts to break it down. Here you go. Number one, stand firm then with the what? The belt of truth buckled around your waist. Get into the word of God. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness in place. Choose to be that instrument of righteousness, not wickedness today. And number three, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of what? Peace. You may be seated, okay? But again, what we see here is now the third piece of supernatural military equipment that God gives us to effectively struggle in our daily struggle with spiritual warfare, whether we like it, lump it, see it, believe it or not. Okay, it's going on, okay? This is the third piece He gives us to what? To stand our ground. We don't have to buckle under pressure. We don't have to give in. We don't have to have that just a, a, a down in the dumps and depressed Christian that's all it is, is just one failure after another. You don't have to live like that. If you pay attention to what He says, the third piece that you put on, is these things called the shoes of peace. And so that's the big question. What are the shoes of peace? You already saw you don't go buy them at the store. And uh, in fact, uh, is anybody going to try that this week? Okay, if you do, just don't tell me you go to Sunrise Bible Church. Okay, just whatever, just a little tip, please. Okay, but anyway, so, so how are we going to find these out? Well, let's do what we've been doing every week. Let's go back and see what the Roman soldiers uniform, the weaponry, and in this case, the shoes were used of literally, so that we can learn what is the literal spiritual truth that Paul's trying to give us an analogy of, okay? So let's take a look. What were these shoes that a Roman soldier wore, okay? The first thing we're going to see is they kept you from stumbling. Now, notice the bottom there. Them babies got some sharp cleats on them, right? These things were basically the military boots of the day, right? Let's take a look at them. A Roman soldier's feet were fitted with this kind of shoe here. Notice again the bottom. It's not just something smooth like a dress shoe, right? It was studded there. It was called a caligae. And in Latin, it just meant boots, literally military boots, okay? There were these heavy-soled military boots. The whole Roman Empire, the rank, they wore these things. And basically, they became symbolic of the expansion of the Roman Empire. Because believe it or not, just because of the footwear that they designed, especially with these cleats on the bottom, they were able to conquer territory after territory. These things became legendary, their shoes, okay? Now, as you can see, to us, we're looking like, man, that looks like a modern sandal. No, they're not like a modern, I mean, it's similar, but they're different, I'll get to that in a second. They're literally marching boots for the day, okay? Uh, they didn't really wear sandals like we wear today, uh, except for like on the inside, okay? But rather, these were open design military boots that were created in this way. Why did they have them open? Well, that allowed, it was designed for free passage of air, okay, for comfort. Think about it. If you were a soldier and you walk with full gear up to 25 miles a day, you would appreciate the sturdiness and the coolness, okay, of this Caligae, okay? And unlike some military boots, they were specifically designed to reduce also the likelihood of blisters that were formed during these marches. They also uh, helped keep from, you know, the diseases like trench foot and things of that nature. Uh, they didn't usually wear socks with these typically because that's really a fashion faux pas. Have you noticed that? Have you ever seen somebody walking around like, 
Well, in case there's some of you here today, I'll just move on. Okay, but no, if they did, that was just in colder climates, like when they went and invaded Britain, things of that nature, as you can see with the pictures there. But another huge, major, mega difference was these Caligae. They look like our modern sandals, okay, but you can see they were uh, fitted with these iron hobnails that were hammered into the sole. Now, that added strength, but it also added traction, great traction, okay? It's kind of like our modern-day cleat right? The, the athletes will wear, right? And this not only provided reinforcement and traction, but listen, it was an effective weapon if your enemy fell to the ground. And he would be deeply impressed at that point. Dun, dun, dun. Let's close in prayer. Well, he's on a high note. No, let's continue on. <laughs> okay. But as you guys can see, especially with those spikes there, man, right? These things were designed for comfort. They give you some air. You wouldn't get diseases because shoes are very important, okay? Especially in battle. But as you saw there, they had these cleats on. These babies had traction, right? They kept you from going backwards. They kept you from, from sliding all over the place. And believe it or not, you're going to need something like that uh, when it comes to fighting a battle. One guy, he puts it this way. The soldier's life, listen, we don't think about this much. I bet you the military does. Okay, but listen, a soldier's life can depend on his shoes because soldiers are required to march long distances. They need to fight in battles in all types of environments. They walk through uh, jungles uh, over rocks. They cross uh, stream beds. They're filled with sharp, jagged rocks. They slog through the snow. They cross burning deserts. And if a soldier's feet became swollen or tender or cut or blistered, the soldier would be hindered when it came time to fight in the battle. Right? That soldier might not be able to stand or be able to fight. He might not be able to march. He might not be able to properly handle his weapons. He certainly could not advance against the enemy, all because his feet were messed up. Common sense? Same thing, okay? Now, these Caligae, okay, is what helped the Roman soldier prepare himself for battle. They, again, had these hobnailed soles on them, which were bits of metal or nails driven through them creating like the spikes, cleats, okay? And they gave the Roman soldier great traction as he climbed the hills, as he fought on uneven terrain, okay? And when the other uh, guys that they were fighting didn't have these kind of shoes, what were they doing? They were slip sliding all over these places. These guys were just what? What's the, what's the context there? Standing firm, chop, 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 man, because they had their cleats on. These shoes were vitally important in winning in the battle. They gave the Roman soldier the stability they needed to engage the enemy. Now listen, and so it is with us, the Christian soldier. If we too are going to stand, as the scripture says, stand, stop moving, slip, sliding all over the place against the wiles of the devil, we have to have this proper spiritual footwear on. Why? Because we can girt ourselves around with the truth of God's word. We can put on that breastplate of righteousness, but if we neglect to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, listen, we Christian are destined to stumble, we're going to fail, we're going to fall in the face of the enemy. So you see why Paul is now drawing this analogy with this next piece of the Roman soldier's equipment. These shoes, just like the Roman soldier, Christian spiritually, we better get these babies on because we have to have the proper footwear. It's important. If we don't get these shoes of the gospel of peace that he's talking about here on, we are going to fail. We are going to go backwards. We're going to stumble. We're going to be the ones slip sliding all over the place as the enemy just hacks us to pieces. Do you see the importance? That's what Paul is saying there. Now, that's the good news. If you just put them on, the bad news is, man, we love shoes. Have you noticed this? We love shoes. The problem is we're so consumed with shoes. It's just the wrong kind of shoe. 
<laughs> we're consumed with the physical shoe, not these spiritual shoes. And then we wonder why we're stumbling, right? Let me give you some statistics. I was blown away by this. How many guys, as parents, you know, you hear the classical story, of course, those other parents, not here, those parents with those kids down south, weird families. And you hear these legends of kids actually approaching their parents and says, Mom and Dad, I not only want new shoes, I want those shoes. You know, the $150 pair. <gasps> Pray for those people down south. They have got some serious struggles they're dealing with. But yeah, $150, what do we say? Oh, $150, that's crazy. Back in my day, we didn't even have shoes. We can pull out one of those stories, right? Right? In fact, we didn't even have sandwiches. We just ate dirt. And we were grateful for that dirt. That's right. And we didn't have shoes. What we did is, first of all, we had to walk uphill both ways to school, however that works out. But in fact, we didn't have shoes. We had to walk in snow and ice with polar bears chasing us. We just wrapped barbed wire around our feet for traction. That's how we survived. $150. Get out of here, right? See, that's what we did. But listen, I did the statistics. Listen to this. Adults, male and female alike, listen. We said, oh, 150 bucks. We don't even bat an eye dropping 200 bucks on a pair of dress shoes. We don't even bat an eye, sorry ladies, $400 on us. And some of you are shaking your heads going, preacher, that ain't nothing. <laughs> 400 bucks, that's cheap, right? And listen, men in the U.S., we spend, we're almost as bad as the ladies. This was shocker, right? We spent, we spent $26.2 billion, not million, $26.2 billion for footwear in 2016. That's the guy's. Ladies, of course, outdid us, but only by a little bit, 30 billion. We love shoes. It's shoes are a big business, man. We talk about shoes. We gotta, we'll fork over big cash for shoes. We gotta, but this is the problem. The enemy's got us distracted. We're fascinated with shoes. We gotta have shoes. We gotta have the right shoes, the proper shoes. It's just we're focused on the wrong shoes. We need to get our spiritual shoes on. Every single day. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, yeah, that, those others are important. Praise God. You don't have to run around barefoot all the time. I appreciate physical shoes. But he says, as important as those are, you better be putting these spiritual ones on. And maybe this is the why. Maybe, oh yeah, maybe you got, that, you got the belt on. Praise God, you're in the Word of God. Praise God that you got that breastplate of righteousness on. But man, as soon as you get out of bed, you start slipping and it doesn't stop the whole day. Why? Because you never got your spiritual shoes on. Why are you stumbling? Why are you fumbling? You did the first two correct, but maybe this is that missing piece. Maybe you're focused on the wrong kind of footwear is what Paul is challenging us to do. In fact, he doesn't just say, like, well, you know, I strongly encourage you to get these shoes, the gospel of peace on. And, uh, you know, whenever it works out for you, you know, maybe consider it, a cup of coffee later, discuss it with your friends, launch a board meeting so they can discuss the feasibility of putting, No! It is urgent. Again, as we've already seen repeatedly, we're to put all the armor of God on. Not just some of it, number one. But also, he's basically saying, you need to be completely with your mindset every day. Get these shoes on and get them on now. The last thing you're going to do is have a mindset, I'm going to be willy-nilly about this. Because he uses the phrase there, your feet shod with the preparation. Is the key word there. He didn't just say get the shoes of the gospel of peace on he says get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace other translations say your feet fitted with the readiness with the gospel of peace in other words you are not pondering about this you're not delaying about this you are every single day just as you're prepared and ready with the word of god just as you're prepared with the breastplate of righteousness i'm choosing to be an instrument of righteousness not of wickedness i am prepared i am ready i'm not even getting out of this bed until I get these shoes on. He's adding emphasis on this. It's all important, 
But this one, he really brings it out in that fashion. The impetus is to hurry up, Christian. Yes, shoes are important. But man, I'm telling you, you better start getting through your head. Spiritual shoes are way more important. If you're going to wig out and spend cash on all those, how much more do you need to get the shoes a piece on now? Because without them, you are going to lose traction. You're going to stumble. You're going to slip and slide all day long, and you don't have to. Right? It keeps you from stumbling. Now, that brings us to the second point there, is again, it can only be put on by me. Right? Think about it. It's the same. We're starting to see a pattern here, hopefully. Right? Just like with the belt of truth, just like with the breastplate of righteousness, this is a consistent truth. When it comes to the armor of God, I am the only one that can do it. In fact, the Greek there says, having sandaled your feet or shod your feet. Other translations would say, fit your feet. Now notice it's whose feet? Not my feet. It's your feet. Right? It's our own feet. Nobody can put these shoes on me. These are my feet. These are my shoes that I need to put on myself. I alone can do this. The word they're shod or fitted in the Greek is the Greek word hupadeo. And it means, listen, to bind under oneself. I can't do that for you. You need to do it. I need to do it for me. I need to literally bind under myself before I go and leave this house with these shoes on there. In fact, it's in the aorist middle uh, participle, which means do it on your own accord. So there's a multitude of ways here that he's drilling home the point. I have to do this, right? I can't go hire some servant because I'm a lazy Christian. Would you please put my shoes on, right? How many times do we go through that with our kids, right? You can't have your mom and dad do this for you. Oh, dare I say, you can't have your pastor put them on. Put your own shoes on. Be an adult. Be a mature Christian. Get your shoes on. You are the only one who can do it. You can't rely on somebody else. You can't rely on somebody to send you a text message. You can't rely on somebody to give you a reminder. Oh, thanks for reminding me again every day. You take your initiative. You are the one who's prepared. You're ready. You got these babies on. You're putting them underneath your own uh, 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 feet yourself. Okay. So that leads us to this question, right? So these things keep us from stumbling. It was a major benefit for the Roman soldier and in our battle too, right? Number two, I'm the only one that can put these things on. Right? But it wasn't just shoes. I don't just put shoes on. What's the phrase there? I'm not just ready with these shoes. I'm not just fitted with these shoes. I don't just bind on these shoes myself. What kind of shoes are they? What's he say? Fill in the blank. They're the shoes of the gospel of peace. And so actually there's a debate. People say, well, what peace, what good news, gospel good, good news, what good news of peace is he talking about there? Well, again, you got two options. Okay, and I want to share that with you. The first option that people say, here's what Paul is basically saying. Every single day, we need to take the initiative. I need to put on what? The peace that we proclaim for Christ, right? That's what some people would say. This is the impetus here. In other words, we need to be prepared every single day. Only I can do it. Only I can make that choice is we need to be prepared to be sharing the gospel. The good news that people can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, right? That's what they would say that Paul is referring to. And oftentimes what they'll say is, well, the reason why we believe that is because what Paul also says uh, in this passage here in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. Let's take a look at that there. Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Well, that's good news, but here's the issue. How, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in him if, if what? If they haven't heard about it, nobody's saying nothing. And, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And, and how can they preach unless they're sent? And as it's written, how beautiful are the feet that bring the what? 
good news, okay? And this is some of the justification that people say, well, this is what Paul's talking about here. That every single day, we need to basically have our feet fitted with the gospel of the good news of peace. We need to be out there every single day as a Christian, and we need to be evangelizing. Well, that's good. And praise God, that is a command from God. Did you know that the Great Commission is called the Great Commission, not the Grand Suggestion? Right? Did you know it's in order to be obeyed, just like you shall not murder, you shall not steal? Well, see, that's the problem. Right? Sometimes we think it's an option. Or it's only for those who have that particular gift. No, really? I'm sorry. I had to murder those people because I don't have that gift to refrain. Right? No, hey, I had to rob that bank because, hey, hey, it's just that's only for those people who have that gift of not being a thief. No, it's in order to be obeyed, right? You share the gospel just like you don't, or you don't steal and you don't murder. Go down the Ten Commandments, right? This is an order from Jesus, right? Now, that's a good thing. I'm going to get into it a little bit more in a second. But just to let you know, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul's talking about when he's talking about putting on these shoes of peace. Now, that's good, but I don't think that's the peace he's talking about that we need to equip ourselves with so we don't go sliding backwards and lose our spiritual traction. Now, here's the reason why, right? Because you take a look at the impetus of this passage in Ephesians 6 that deals with this armor. He says, we don't go. What do we do? We stand, right? The gospel is something we what? Go to the ends of the earth to share. But here he says, you stand, right? Ephesians 6, 1, put on the full armor of God so that you can what? Go into all the world? No, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6, 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, again, 14 and 15, stand firm then. How? With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So when you take a look at this passage, the emphasis is not on going, as in sharing the gospel, not that that's bad, but that's a going thing. What's the impetus here? Stand, 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 stand. So I don't think that that's necessarily what he's talking about. However, I will say this before we continue on, and I give you what I believe he's talking about, is, man, we don't seem to be doing a very good job of even sharing the gospel, do we? And we do treat it like it's an option. Like it's only going for those people. Or we'll cut a check so those other people can go do it. Or we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll have meetings about it. Pastor, that was a stirring sermon about sharing the gospel, right? We'll have conferences about sharing the gospel. We'll read books about sharing the gospel. You know what we won't do? We don't share the gospel. And you know what happens? That's about as goofy as ending up like these people. Watch this. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. If you follow now it came to pass that there was a group who called themselves fishermen. And lo, the waters around them were full of fish. In fact, the whole area where they lived was surrounded by streams and lakes full of fish. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met to talk about the abundance of fish everywhere. They talked about their call to fish and how they might go about catching fish. Year after year, in special meetings, they carefully explained what fishing means and outlined fishing as an occupation. They declared that fishing is always the primary task of fishermen. They were constantly looking for new and better ways to fish. They declared that the fishing industry exists only by fishing. They planned special get-togethers called Fishermen's Retreats 
and even established the month for fishermen to fish. They sponsored nationwide fishermen's rallies and eventually included fishermen from all over the world in international seminars on fishing. Here they discussed fishing, they promoted fishing, they heard about all the new fishing equipments and baits and the most attractive ways to display new lures to the hungry fish. These fishermen soon joined forces with others interested in promoting fishing, and they built large buildings where they could meet and teach new fishermen to fish and to improve their own skill by listening to what others of their group had to say. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and that every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what was needed was a board that could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing and to send out fishermen to other places, to where there were many fish. This board was made up of those with a great vision and courage to talk about fishing and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. The board hired staff members, appointed committees, and held many meetings to define fishing to promote fishing, and to decide which new stream should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, how to approach and feed fish, and how to catch fish. Then you pop that sucker in the water, just let it sit for a short period of time, and then give some little quick jerks like this. Those who taught these courses had degrees in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Some teachers and students alike spent much time in study and travel to learn the history of fishing. They visited far-off places where the founding fathers did great fishing in the early days of fishing, and they praised those who had handed down the idea of fishing. Presses were kept busy day and night producing materials solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange meetings to talk about fishing. Many responded who felt the call to be fishermen. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for fish and brought in tractors to plow new waterways for the fish. They established centers to care for sick and hurt fish. Some said they wanted to be part of the fishing team, but they felt called to make and furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Still others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors was enough. Someday we really got to tell these people to go out and spread the word. But why don't we do it? Is it because we're afraid of failure? Is it because we're afraid of being intimidated? Is it because we're afraid of rejection? I don't know why. Why do we just look at this lake and not go fishing? Wally, you're a prime example. You live on this lake, you're a fisherman, and you don't fish. Now tell me why. I guess I'm afraid of failure. Is that a failure? You know, if you go with me, you won't fail. I've offered to take you fishing. After one stirring meeting on the necessity of fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day, he reported a very successful catch. 
He was honored for his success and was quickly scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. He was also placed on the board as a person having considerable experience. So he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about his experience to other fishermen. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received ridicule from those around them who saw them going to fishermen's meetings and claiming to be fishermen, yet never fishing. Some of the fishermen wondered about their fellow fishermen who never attended the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the one who said, follow me and I will make you fishermen? Imagine how hurt they were when one day someone suggested that those who didn't fish weren't really fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Somehow it sounds correct. Is a person a fisherman if he never fishes? Is he following if he isn't fishing? Hmm. Interesting. Let's translate it for you. Is a person really a Christian if they never share Christ? Are you really a follower of Christ if you don't follow in his footsteps and you never go fishing for men? What's the stat I've shared before? 95% of people who profess to belong to Jesus Christ, 95% never once lead not even one soul to Christ. You're not fishing. That's a serious problem. Sharing the gospel so that others can have peace with God through Jesus is not an option. It is a command. It is an order to be obeyed. It's the great commission, not the grand suggestion. It's something for all of us to do, not to think about, not to ponder, not to take a class and sit around or say, that's only for those people. While at the same time saying you're a fisherman. What makes the feet so beautiful that Paul did talk about in Romans 10 is when they got around to bringing that good news so that others can be saved. How can they be saved if nobody tells them? Why does Las Vegas still have a statistic that 95% of people still don't know Christ as their Savior? Maybe it's because 95% of those professing to be fishermen still won't fish. Exact same numbers. Interesting. So sharing the gospel of peace with other people, that is important. And there's no way I was going to run through that theory and not hit it again. We need to share the gospel. Now, but with all that said, I don't think in our text, Romans 6, that's as good as that is. That's not what Paul is talking about there. That's not what he's talking about that's going to keep our spiritual traction when we're facing spiritual warfare. It's good, but that's not what it is. The second option, this is what I think he's talking about. What is this peace that we're to put on ourselves every single day? What is that peace that he's talking about, the good news of this peace that's going to keep me from slipping and sliding against the evil one? Well, that is what I believe is the peace we have with Christ. Okay, this really comes in handy when it comes to spiritual warfare. Now, we've seen before uh, the word there, peace, in the Greek is erene. Okay, means a couple things. Let me bring uh, those aspects out for you. The first one, listen to this. When it means that we have the good news of peace, that we're at peace with God, listen to what it literally means. Erene means the exemption, listen, from the rage and havoc of war. What's the context there? I am, at, listen, I am no longer, listen, at war with God. I'm not under that havoc of an experience. I am not God's enemy. Through Jesus Christ, here's the good news. I have become his child. I'm his beloved. He will never cast me away. Why? Because through the cross of Christ, I have peace with God. 
I'm not his enemy. I think that's very important when it comes to the listening to the accusations of the evil one in the midst of the spiritual battle. Now, this is what Paul did say. Okay, in Romans chapter 5, 1, 6, 8 through 10. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Right now, Christian, through Jesus Christ, we have what? Peace with who? God. And that's through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? Saved from God's wrath through Him. For if when we were God's what? Best buddies? No. Enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? Is the key word there. Saved through His life. Saved from what? What's the context there? Before we got saved, we were under what? God's wrath. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, before we called upon His name, before His blood washed us clean of all of our sins, we were an enemy of God. We were ungodly. We were at war with God. And through Jesus Christ, His cross, His work provided peace. He changed our status with God. I am not at war with God. There is, I am exempted from rage and havoc of war. That's what Irene means. And this is what I believe Paul is talking about here. This is the knowledge of the peace that we need to practically put on. Yes, put on the word of God. Yes, make that decision. I'm going to be an instrument of righteousness. But every day when you get out of bed, no matter what the enemy says to you, because Christian, you're going to blow it. You put these shoes on. I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ. I may act like it sometimes, but I'm not God's enemy anymore. I'm not under his wrath. He's not mad at me. He's not going to cast me away. He loves me. Now, isn't that something good to have on in the midst of the battle? See, that's the peace I think he's talking about. That's the first aspect of the peace. And it's not just that God's not mad at you. You're not under his wrath anymore. You belong to him. You're his child. And as a heavenly parent, you know what God does? He takes care of his kids. Anybody ever have a bully growing up? Anybody ever as a parent, you hear that there's a bully with bullying your kid? And, and, and you want to lay hands on him in a very profound way? Because what's the thing? Don't you dare mess with my child. You hear about mama bears, right? Don't mess with me. Papa bear, don't mess with my kids, man. Right? Somebody going to discipline them? I'll discipline them. But don't you get your hand off my kid. And basically what Paul is saying is, I'm not, under, I'm not God's enemy anymore. I'm his child. And it isn't just that God's not mad at me when I do blow it, because we're going to blow it, Christian. Listen, the point is, God's right there with me, and God's got my back. That's what he's talking about here. The enemy's going to come at you. He's going to accuse you. God hates you. God, he can't stand you. Look what you did, you Christian. You blew it. Oh, you just ripped out that uh, breastplate of righteousness. Look at you. God can't love you. He hates you. He's not, no. <clears throat> Be gone, Satan. I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ. I'm his, yes, I blew it, but he loves me with an everlasting love. He's got my back. I stand in his power. And then you watch God knock his teeth out. One guy puts it this way. Watch this. I love this. He said, I, when I was in junior high in the seventh grade, he said, I had this little friend. His name was Roger. He was a little guy, right? He actually looked like a fourth grader. He was like one of those little pudgy little kids, little angelic cherubic look. He said, like, like the Pillsbury, Pillsbury Doughboy. Right? You poke that. that was Roger, he said. Right? He said, Roger and I were friends because I was the pastor's son. 
We went to the same church services, and we were Sunday school buddies, right? But we went to the same junior high, and this was a rough junior high. I mean, talking fight, knife fights, drugs, you name it, all that stuff. And, and so me and Roger, we'd be walking along. We'd always get picked on by the bullies there, right? There's several of them. And uh, they would knock our books out, kick them all over the place and all that stuff. One day, we're just going into gym class, he says, and basically here comes those bullies again, about six of them. And they smack us in the back of the head. We go rolling down the bleachers, and we smack our heads in the back of the lockers. And finally, you know, you can only take so much, he says. Roger says, that's enough. <laughs> and so I said to Roger, he says, well, what are you going to do about it, Roger? And Roger says, I'm going to tell my brother. And I said, well, that's good. He said, because I knew his brother. His brother's name was Steve. And I'll never forget Steve. Steve played middle linebacker for Long Beach State. He was six foot four. He's about 245. And he had a 30-inch waist. And I'll never forget Steve, he says, because I remember the first time I heard him give his testimony. He was driving a bread truck and he hit a concrete wall going 40 miles per hour and he just walked away. That's the kind of guy Steve was, a tremendous uh, physical specimen. And so Roger said he's going to tell his brother Steve. And I said, that's great. So they come back and, and he says the next day, and I see Roger. And Roger says, Steve's coming. He's going to do something about this. Right, so sure enough, these bullies there, their leader, there's a guy named Johnny, right? They're standing at their usual spot there. They're smoking. They're wearing out the grass, just all their conversations, yucking up. And, and, and Steve was there, but he was hiding behind the building where they couldn't see him. Well, the way it's about 15 minutes before school started, and Roger and I were there. We were just hanging around. And then Roger pipes in and he yells out to Johnny, hey, you, Johnny, come here. Well, it probably went more like this. Hey, you, Johnny, come here. <laughs> and he said, oh, they were laughing. They were laughing at Roger. They were yucking it up. <laughs> yeah, and they were really laying it on. So, so this Johnny kid comes swaggering out towards uh, uh, Roger there, and, and, and he's laughing. He's mocking at Roger. And at this point, Steve walks around the corner, and he walks up to Roger, and he simply says, which one? And Roger says, him. <laughs> at that point, Steve walks up to the guy. He says, I'll never forget it. This is exactly what happened. He just picked that guy up by the shirt, lifted him up, and took his fist and knocked out his four teeth in one shot crushed his nose knocked him out cold he lay there then he picked him up like a rag doll he picked him up with one arm he throws him over the hedge at the back wall of the past the gym there he throws him over the hedge he lands behind a bush and then he says to the rest of the guys don't you ever mess with roger again and he walked away and he says you know what happened in our junior high roger ruled <laughs> Roger ruled that junior high. You know why? Because Roger had resources. And he says, so it is with us, Christian. Isn't it tremendous to know that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers? Right? Isn't it a great thing to know that he's on our side? The gospel of peace that Paul's talking about here is the marvelous truth that in Christ we are now at peace with God and we are at one with him. I am no longer at war with God. Listen, God goes to war for me. The status of a relationship is that, listen, God has changed from us being enemies. He's now my defender. And this is important to note, Christian, when it comes to dealing with spiritual warfare. Because again, there are going to be times when, listen, you're going to blow it. There's going to be times, listen, when the enemy is going to come at you. You're going to stumble. You're going to bumble. You're going to fall down. And the enemy, he's going to come in and he's going to say, listen, you might as well just give up. Look at you, you worthless soldier. Who do you think you are? You're not a friend of God. You're not his brother. You're not his child. You are an enemy of God. And God hates you and he's turned his back on you. When the whole time the scripture says, he's never turned his back on me. 
He's like, Steve, he's got my back. I'll not only always be his child, but even when I do fumble and bumble, I got God right there. And I just say, God, knock his teeth out. Now, isn't that some good shoes to put on every day? Because there's going to be times when we blow them, Christian. Yes, sharing the gospel is important. But I really think this is more of what Paul is talking about there. Now, there is another aspect that I think he's talking about here with this peace, still on that same uh, line there. Okay, Irene does mean I'm no longer at havoc or war with you know, God and, and things of that nature. But it also means, listen, a state of tranquility, we've seen this before, between individuals. Security, harmony is what Irene means in, uh, as well. Now, in our relationship with God, that means, listen, I am forgiven of all my sins. That my walk with Jesus Christ is secure for all eternity. That no matter how many battles I get in, listen, Christian, no matter how many times I fall, I'm secure. I'm at peace with God. My relationship is at harmony with Him. It's a positional truth. And this is another area that the enemy is going to attack. Right? He not only tries to get us to think that God hates us, he's mad at us, and he ain't going to protect us. And that's a lie because Satan knows if we understood that, we stand strong and God knocks his teeth out. But he tries to also demoralize us in trying to get us that when we fall, not just thinking that God's mad at us, that's a lie. But it's to think, okay, I know God loves me, but you know what? I'm a worthless idiot. I can't do nothing right. I might as well just quit. I might as well just go AWOL. I have no right serving Christ. Look at me. I keep falling down. Paul says, no, you got a reign with God. You better put that on. God's not just got my back and I'm his child and I'm not at war with him. He goes to war for me. But my walk with Jesus Christ is safe and secure. And listen, God uses me in spite of me. Hello? We've dealt with this so many times before. If you think that you have to be perfect as a Christian, I'm not condoning sin, but if you think you've got to be perfect before God can use you, guess what? He ain't used none of us, especially even me. Look at all the heroes of old. David, what? He was a murderer. Moses stuttered. Peter denied Christ. Miriam was a gossip. How many times have you look at all these heroes of old? They weren't perfect. Praise God, God uses imperfect people. Right? And this is another aspect of that peace, okay? The enemy tries to demoralize. He tries to get us to think that, listen, we are unqualified. We have no business drawn near to Christ. You might as well just give up. You might as well go backwards. You might as well just keep stumbling. You might as well just keep going back that way. When the whole time, the church of Jesus Christ needs you, right? And it's based on this aspect that I'm at peace with God. And that when I stumble, what do you do? You do 1 John 1, 9, right? That if we what? What's it say there? If we confess our sins, God is what? He is faithful and just, and he what? Maybe, might, he'll think about it. Depends on your behavior. No, he will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Now, this is what's cool. I, I wanted to bring this aspect out because this is, this is, talk about having peace with God. The word there, forgive, in the Greek, how many times have we quoted this passage? How many times have you heard me preach this passage? First John 1, 9. The word there, forgive, is aphemi in the Greek, and it means, listen to this, to send away. To disregard, to abandon, to give up, to leave behind, to let go, to no longer discuss. Now stop that. Stop. When it comes to asking God for the forgiveness of our sins, we, we seem to have this mindset. Yeah, God, please don't send me to hell. Well, that's already been secure the moment you got saved. But we still have this, oh, God, please don't punish me. And there is an aspect that God disciplines those whom he loves. We've talked about that before. 
But in essence, what that word there, forgive, means in the Greek, listen, in essence, when we go to God and we do stumble and we do fall in the battlefield of life and the enemy is laughing his guts at us and, and then we come to God and we say, God, would you please forgive me? Do you realize what we're asking God to do? We're asking God to do this. God, please don't ever bring this up again. God, would you just abandon for good what I just did? God, would you please let this go and just leave it behind? Would you... That's what we're asking him to do when we ask him to forgive us. Now, you know why Paul says not just the shoes of peace, it's the shoes of the gospel of peace. What's the word? Evangelion means good news. You know why it's called good news? Because what I just said, what we just asked God to do, please don't bring this up again. Don't ever discuss it. Please abandon it. Just let it go. God, please just let it go. Don't ever think about it. Don't, don't even let it run space in your head. Oh, God, please, please. He will. Isn't that good news? He will. He says he will forgive us. He will not bring it up again. He will not discuss it again. He will abandon it. He will let the thing go. I will forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. And this is why John says later, it's gone. God's really going to do what you asked him to do in Christ. First John 2, 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins, what? They have been forgiven. God let it go. I'm not going to think about it. It's gone. I'm not going to bring it up on account of his name. Micah 7, 18, 19. Who is a God like you? Wow. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression. You again will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. Hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 8, 12. For, you, or for God says, I will forgive their wickedness. And listen, he will remember our sins no more. What's God saying? I'm not even going to think about it. When you say, please forgive me, please don't bring it up, don't discuss it, just abandon it, God, let it go, God says, I will. And if God refuses to bring it up again, maybe it's time we let it go too. Here's where it comes in handy in spiritual warfare. How many of you have heard this voice? You did blow it. But you did the right thing. You put on the shoes of peace. God, please forgive me. And you know he forgave you. But this voice in your head keeps accusing you of that same deed again and the next day and again and again. Listen, if God's forgiven and forgotten about it, so should we. Now, is that evangelion? Is that good news? Is that some good peace to put on your shoes every day? Because you know that's exactly what the enemy does. He's called the great accuser. Accuser means riddles with accusations. That's what he does every single day. Every, he's just waiting for us to fall. He tempts us to fall, but it's not just that. When we fall, what's he do? Look at you, look at you, look at you. And he'll keep doing it every day. Something that happened 10 years ago. Look at how. And God said, what are you talking about? I was abandoned the second you asked for forgiveness. I ain't bringing it up. Why are you bringing it up? Why are you listening to the devil instead of your Savior? Put your shoes of peace on. You see where this is coming in handy when it's spiritual warfare? You see how that'll keep you from stumbling, going backwards, and I can't serve God? <clears throat> it's like those spikes, man. You dig it into God's word. No, God said this. And you don't go anywhere. You stand as a Christian. And he doesn't just abandon it. He just says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it up. God, on top of that, obliterates it. I love this obliterates it, okay? This is what we see in Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I am he who, what's the word there? Blots out our transgressions for my own sake and I remember your sins no more. 
Now, the Hebrew word there for blot is makah. And listen, it means this, to utterly wipe out, to destroy, to eliminate, to become invisible, to disappear. Listen, to obliterate and exterminate. It is gone. If you blow something to smithereens, it's obliterated. Can you find it? No, that's the definition. It is completely gone. You can search high and low. You'll never find it. Why? Because boom, it's been obliterated. That's what God says I'll do with your sins. And this is why Paul says when it comes to my past, I forget that. This is really cool. Philippians 3.13. But one thing I do, Paul says, I forget. What's the word there? Forget what is what? Behind. What's my focus every day? I'm just moving forward for Christ. Now, what's wild is the Greek word there for forgetting is the Greek word epilanthanomai, and it means to listen, not just forget, not just to no longer care for. It means to listen, to give over to oblivion. Do you get it? Paul is saying, listen, I am not even going to bring up my past. If God wants to, that's between him. But listen, the good news is this. I put that over into a state of oblivion because God has obliterated my sins. You understand that? Why? So, so he doesn't just abandon it. He doesn't just obliterate it. If he doesn't bring it up and it's completely smashed to smithereens, why do we keep going backwards in the past and torment ourselves with something that's been gone a long time? Not just waiting for the enemy to accuse us, but how many times do we beat ourselves up and we allow those thoughts to come back? Remember what you did? You're not worthy. You couldn't even serve Christ. You have no business sharing the gospel. Look at you. Remember what you did? God says, listen, I've long forgotten it. I'm not bringing it up. The thing is completely obliterated. One more. And on top of all that, now, now again, I'm trying to focus on that phrase. It's not just peace. It's euangelion. It's good news. So what makes this good news of peace? It isn't just that God's got my back. I'm his child. I'm not at war with him. He's my defender. He's Steve. Got my back the whole day. I don't need to be afraid. Knock their teeth out, God. Right? But this kind of peace that my walk with Jesus is safe and secure even when I stumble. He doesn't just listen. He doesn't just forget it. He doesn't just uh, obliterate it. He now considers me 100% of the time. It's a positional truth. Blameless. Blameless. Look at this, these scriptures, okay? Again from Paul. Ephesians chapter 1. Long before he got to uh, 6, the very first thing he set out the pace was, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? To be holy and blameless in his sight, Ephesians 5, 27. And to present him to her, himself, the church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Colossians 1, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jude 1, To him, God, who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Why? Because the word there, blameless, in the Greek is amamas, and it means he will present us on that day. God only sees us right now, the moment we got saved, positioning in Christ, as if what? We have no spots, no blemish, no flaw, no shame, no disgrace. Why? Because he has made me holy and pure in Christ. That's what we saw last week with the positional truth. And this is what God has done through me, for me, through the blood of Jesus. That's why I'm at peace with him. This is why Paul says, put this kind of peace on. Because this is exactly where the enemy is going to come after you. This is what Paul says. You've got to get through your heads. Number one, I am not at war with God. God goes to war for me. Number two, all my sins are forgiven, forgotten, obliterated by God. And I don't need to listen to the accuser 
and put me back under a yoke of slavery ever again. One girl tried that with her little brother. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. There was a little boy, he was visiting his grandparents and he was given his very first slingshot. And soon he was practicing in the woods, but man, he couldn't hit any target. He was no good. And so then he comes back to his grandma's backyard and he spied her pet duck. And so on impulse, you know, he took aim, right? But this time, the stone hit and it killed her duck. The duck fell dead. So the little boy, he panicked and he desperately hid the dead duck in the woodpile. And only to look up and see his sister Sally watching the whole time. But, but she's she seen it all, but she didn't say anything. But then after lunch that day, Grandma says, Sally, Sally, hey, hey let's, do the, uh, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said that she goes, oh, uh, uh, Johnny wanted me, uh, uh, John, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispers to him, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if uh, the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma says, no, I, hey, I'm sorry, I need Sally to help make supper. And so Sally smiled and she says, hey, that's all taken care of, Grandma, because Johnny wants to do it. And again, she whispers, remember the duck. So Johnny stayed and Sally went fishing. This, this is going on for several days and Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's chores. And finally he couldn't take it any longer. And so he, he confessed. He confessed to his grandma that he had killed the duck. And listen to what she said. She says, I know, Johnny. And she gave him a big hug. She said, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgave you. Listen, I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Why is it this piece that Paul's talking about? Isn't this what the enemy does every single time, Christian? He accuses us. How many times do we listen to the accuser of sin? This is the spiritual warfare we deal with every day. Yes, praise God, share the gospel. Don't be a fishless fisherman. But every day when we are in spiritual warfare, he is the accuser of sin. He wants us to feel horrible and guilty when Jesus has long since forgiven us of the sin. It's gone, it's obliterated. And this is what Paul is saying. Put these shoes on every single day. Have this in your mindset because he's coming after you, Christian. He's coming to accuse you. And you need to sit there and say, no, the duck is dead. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I've been set free and forgiven in Christ. And when the enemy comes to keep you in bondage, to keep you going backwards, to keep you and push you down on the battlefield, get you to stop serving Jesus Christ, you say no. I have the good news of these shoes of peace. I walk around in this peace. I'm immersed in this peace. Yeah, I blew it. But Christ has forgiven me. He's got my back. Be gone. And if we don't do that, if we don't put those shoes on, I can't do it for you. See, that's a mindset, right? But it's a mindset that comes straight out of what? The very first thing you're supposed to put on, the belt of truth. Where am I getting all this from? The word, I'm getting ahead of myself, the word of God is interwoven in every single piece of armor. You wonder why he started off with? Get the Bible on. Because the rest of the armor is dependent on that first step. But when you're in the word of God, listen, I'm just quoting Bible. Isn't this good news? Isn't it awesome to have this peace with God? Well, this is exactly where the enemy's going to attack. And this is why Paul's bringing it up. Because if you don't appropriate this, if you don't put this peace on every single day, you're going to stop fighting on the battlefield when the whole time you're a mighty warrior of God. 
right? Don't listen to the devil's lies. Get up, get your shoes on, Christian, and get back to the front lines. Stop listening to the devil. Listen to your Savior. You have peace with God now. And nothing, no one, not even your own sin can take that away. And again, I'm saying this, Christian, we've got to just basically, what Paul is saying is, get up and fight. I'm not condoning it. He's not condoning it. But it's going to happen. You're going to blow it. You're going to make a mistake. Nobody becomes a warrior in a day. It takes time to learn how to wield the weapons and put the armor on. But when you stumble, when you fumble, when you get tricked into allowing a crack in the breastplate and the unrighteousness comes in, maybe you got tricked into throwing the whole thing off. And your whole life is, is just filled with sin. I'm not, I, I'm, listen, I'm not condoning it. But Paul is saying, listen, when the enemy is there at that moment, he's not done. It wasn't just to get you to do the unrighteous deed. It's that second part. And that voice comes in. And this is what will make you stumble. This is what will make you lose your traction. This will make it when you say, man, I, I can't serve Christ. I got to get out of here. It's when the accuser comes and he's laughing at you. Like Johnny, that leader. <laughs> Look at you. Who are you? He's laughing at you. He's, he's mocking you. He's making you feel like a total failure. He's accusing you. He's saying, you might as well just give up, Christian. You might as well hide. Go back in the hole. Stop serving Christ. Retreat. Go AWOL. And Paul says, no. You put your shoes on. And you stand firm. When the enemy comes accusing, you don't need to go running you stand in the shoes of peace. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been forgotten, buried in the deepest sea, obliterated, remembered no more. And so as many times as we fall, we get up by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, as a blameless, faultless, spotless one who's no longer at war with God, we wield our sword in the day of battle. And when the enemy comes and wants to remind us of our sin... We point him back to the Father, who then simply says, get this, what sin? And you have a great day in Christ. It's kind of like this song. We'll close in prayer to this.
not manage anymore. They're his job. What's sin? It's all gone. So stop listening to the enemy. And in essence, Paul says, in this battle we're in, the enemy can't take away your salvation. But he'll trick you, Christian. I've seen Christians who are still sitting on the battlefield of life because they don't understand what it means to have these shoes of peace on. They're tormented day after day after day, listening to the devil who reminds them of their sin instead of going back to God's word and says, uh-uh, what sin? Get up. Stand for Christ. Every Soldier is needed in this battle. And if that's you, and if you've been sitting down because you haven't had these shoes of peace on, get them on, get back up. This is good news. And stand for Jesus again. When the enemy reminds you of your sin, point him to Jesus, and what's he say? What sin? And if that's him, tell him we love him. All right, let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? 
Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So, once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, You shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that. Really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You'll be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven. In that state, you're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, Number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. 
For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.